Our children may now be dismissed to continue their worship. Let us pray. God, who is present among us in this very moment, speak to us a new word, an old word, of your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a website that I like to go to sometimes for some reassurance that I am not alone. It's called Reasons My Son is Crying. It's a Tumblr where a dad shares photos of his son crying with logical explanation as to what set his tears into motion. He got wet in the bath. I wouldn't let him drown in the pond. A puzzle piece wouldn't fit in upside down, or he's not allowed to touch fire. You see, his son is a toddler, and toddlers are a dangerous combination of demanding and yet fragile assertive and yet very sensitive. Drew and I are in the midst of the parenting test known as the terrible twos with our oldest son. If he had his way, James's world would be full of new toys, whether yours or his, endless supply of fruit snacks, or a continuous stream of Thomas the Train, whether on TV, iPad, iPhone, whatever. And since we cannot fulfill all of these requests— Drew and I are becoming master negotiators to help James navigate his way in the world. For caving into every request would do more harm and more cavities than good. So as we've been reading Jeremiah this month in the lectionary, I can't help but feel a bit more empathetic for God, the divine parent with God's assertive yet sensitive children. As we read in past weeks, I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and good things, but if you can't be a good listener, then I will change my mind about the good that I intended. As if to say, I'm going to count to three, and if by the time I get to three, you have not changed your mind, then no promised land. (laughs) Each time as our sun melts down, no matter the issue at hand, it's always the same reason that he is crying. The world is not the way he wants it to be. Frustrated with his limitations, he throws himself into the process of grief, of denial and anger and bargaining. He fights his helplessness by digging his heels in and continuing his requests as if enough willpower or enough desire could change his reality. The toddler tantrum is more than just some developmental milestone that we all went through. It is the human experience. You cannot get what you always want. What is another's possession cannot become yours just because you want it. What exists in possibility cannot always be accomplished because of the restraints of time and space and resources. And as mature adults like we are, we may not cry out loud and stomp our feet, but daily we grieve when we realize that life is not the way we want it. The world is not how it could or should be. In response to our fear of life being out of control and our awareness that the world has gone bad, we take matters into our own hands. Made in God's image, we seek to be God, to take over the role of God. We don't want to wait for God to act. Or perhaps we don't trust God's wisdom or God's power, so we go out to fix and to arrange, to shape and to control. 
and we often start it innocently. The dream is simple, but the means are complicated. We dream of the promotion, but we have to step on others' backs in order to get there. We dream of success, but we have to drag others down to get there. We believe the only way to get what we want is if we can manage to orchestrate the world around us, attempting to control and manipulate people and situations like chess pieces. Until that moment when we realize that the game of chess is one with great risk, for it is founded on a rule book that is an illusion, for life cannot be orchestrated and people cannot be controlled, realize most profoundly when we see that life is out of control. And it works itself out time and time again in scripture, in our lives, in books and movies and TV. In each episode of ABC Scandal, Olivia Pope attempts to spin the latest controversy in order to save a reputation. In each episode of Mad Men, Don Draper attempts to escape the past that he cannot manage to erase. In each episode of Downton Abbey, Thomas and Miss O'Brien attempt to move their way up the ladder at the expense of their fellow staff, and so on and so on and so on. But each time, each plot, each episode, without fail, there always comes that scene when the scheming goes wrong, when the plot blows up in their face, when their helplessness is as palpable as the chair that they sit in and as palpable as the hands that hold their head in defeat. And in that moment, we as viewers, we connect with them. We may not have agreed with what they've done, but we see their brokenness and their humanity, the power drained from within them, and they are a human being not so foreign to us, holding our heads and our hands when we have been disappointed by our own limited powers. And alongside our sighs, you can hear God's cries of sadness from the heavens. Just as we read in Jeremiah previously, be appalled at this, be shocked. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. We throw out the way of reverence and humility and compassion, and we buy into the illusion that we can orchestrate the world around us as if we are God's. And we become the sheep who has wandered off in the wilderness, the coin who gets lost amidst the scheming of our days. And on the inside, we scream and weep and stomp our feet. Louisville native Tori McClure-Murden writes, I can easily see that my most faithless moments were those where I was pushing the hardest for the outcomes I thought I could control. In her memoir, A Pearl in the Storm, Tori takes readers on her two attempts to row across the Atlantic Ocean by herself in a rowboat. You smell the ocean water, you feel the wind whipping past, and you see the dolphins swim by as she rows and she rows for days on end. As the miles pass, she chronicles the stories of her life, and you hear this long, impressive list of accomplishments— her three master's degrees, the first woman and first American to ski to the South Pole, her roles as hospital chaplain and executive director of a homeless shelter, and public policy analysis for the mayor and friend to Muhammad Ali, to name a few. But the most compelling role that she shares is that as a sister. The relationship that shaped her most profoundly was with Lamar, her older brother who faced life with various developmental challenges. 
no matter the valiant attempts to be her brother's keeper. She witnesses Lamar suffer ridicule and persecution for his weakness. So she writes, Every person in need became my brother. Each time I failed to make a difference, it rubbed salt in the unutterable wound of this primary failure. No longer would I be content to merely joust with helplessness. I would hunt it down and kill it. I would become large enough, strong enough, and clever enough to protect the people who needed my protection. Out in the middle of the Atlantic, she held on for dear life as the waves pounded and the lightning struck and her devices broke and she had no communication for days and ultimately a system of hurricanes caused her to send out the desperate rescue signal that brought her back home alive but bitter in defeat. A year later, she returned, determined as ever to finish the task, but more importantly, to prove her strength and defeat that helplessness that had chased her all her life long. But when she found herself back in the storm, a storm that threatened her life wave upon wave, she hung her head in defeat. She was broken, and no matter the effort, she had to face the reality that had been pounding her boats for miles. She writes, Helplessness was not something outside of me, some force I had to defeat. Helplessness was a part of me. It is our brokenness and helplessness that makes us human. I thought I had been trying to earn God's forgiveness, but the forgiveness I needed was my own. I thought that rowing across the ocean would make me stronger and wiser and less susceptible to the vicissitudes of human existence. What I did not realize was rowing across an ocean wouldn't make me any less human. I needed to accept my dragons. I needed to make peace with my helplessness. To the people gone away trying to fight the storm on their own, God told Jeremiah to tell the people, return to me. I will bring you to Zion. I will bring you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. To the sinners who accepted their weakness and those who fought against it, Jesus told his parables and celebrated the practice of repentance. Jesus celebrated repentance. Not just so God could regain control or assert power or put us in our place. Rather, Jesus celebrates repentance, for it pulls us out of the isolation that we create for ourselves when we try to do everything on our own. Repentance is what saves us. It is the naming of our brokenness, the acknowledgement of our weakness, the moment when we confess our humanity to ourselves so that we may lean in to the grace and mercy of the one who is searching the wilderness for us. Too often we are like Tori, fighting the weakness that lives within us by our heroic attempts to be more than we are. May we not wait until we are stranded in the Atlantic to learn repentance, pushing ourselves to the brink of the wilderness to see how far we can go. But instead, may we learn the daily act of repentance. For when our weakness goes unnamed, our frustrations too often turn into weapons set loose on the world. Like we do each week in our prayer of confession, we need time and space and structure and our regular routines to acknowledge our weakness and our brokenness, to name our desire to be superhuman, to be someone who is immune to the common challenges of life, 
to be the person who is strong enough to halt evil in its tracks, to be the hands and feet of Christ and thereby save the world all on our own doing. We need journals where we name it for ourselves. We need prayer time where we lay it before God. We need friends and community where they can hold it in weakness and love. Repentance reunites us with God, where God's mercy and grace can reorient our worldview to remember that God does not require us to be the best in order for God's love to be made flesh among us. We may be made in the image of God, but we are not God. God is God. Repentance reunites us with one another. When we are honest about our weakness, we allow others to see the real us and not be fooled by our attempts at perfection. Vulnerability and humility is what reunites us and reconciles us one to another. I love what Nadia Boltz Weber, a non-traditional edgy pastor in Denver, said recently on NPR in an interview. She's up front with those who join our, her church. She says, as your pastor, there will come a time when I disappoint you. At some point, this church will disappoint you, for we are a community of human beings. So please, before that, decide now that you'll stick around. Because if you leave, you will miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills the cracks of our brokenness. And it's too beautiful to miss. Too often when we look at Jeremiah, our eyes are quick to create a God in our own human image. A parent at the end of their rope. Stubborn and unrelenting in punishment who has had it up to here with the children. And cannot let go of anger until the punishment has been served. But that is the opposite of what we see when we step back and we look at the whole picture of Jeremiah and of all scripture. For time and time again, God's anger and frustration melts out of compassion for creation. Amidst the storms where we fight against the reality of our brokenness, may we hear the reassuring voice of God, our divine parent, return to me. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, full of compassion and love. Like a mother who sees the accident waiting to happen and calls out, slow down, God is there to dust off our knees and hold us in her lap. Like a father who sees the difficult practice of sharing and calls out, take turns, God is there to teach us reconciliation and forgiveness. For me, no matter the arguments of the day or the tantrums thrown, each night I climb in bed with our son and we sing our bedtime songs. I hold him close with my nose against his cheek and my hand on his belly, and all the frustration of the day melts, and I relent, and I forgive. And I remember that no matter the challenges of the day, that as the night comes, I give thanks for his little life. How much, even more so, God comes to us as night falls, as our brokenness and weakness sinks in. God lights the lamp and sweeps the house and finds us. And the heavens sing, and all is renewed, all is at home. And then God invites us to rest in the knowledge that though we may and will wander tomorrow, God will be be there waiting to put us on his shoulders and bring us home where grace abounds when we are united again, 
a reunion full of mercy and grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Should today be the day that you want to repent and reunite with the one who welcomes us home, or to join this community of faith, this people as we seek to practice repentance and celebrate reunion through God's grace. It is our tradition that you may come forward to share that decision while we sing our final hymn. Now to the one who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish far more than all we could ask or imagine. To God may we give our worship and our praise and our very lives. Amen. Amen.